0: Hello fellow foodies and welcome back. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. This week we're talking about one of my favorite subjects and that would be foraging and As I've always said, what is a weed but a very successful plant? And there are many different ways that we can explore how to use um, the weeds that we find in our environments. Our guest today is Professor Philip Stark. He is the founder of Berkeley Open Source Food and Wild and Feral Food Week um, that occurs each year in May. He's also a professor of statistics at Berkeley University. Philip is passionate about urban foraging, including studying the safety, nutrition, and availability of wild foods in urban ecosystems and their value for ecosystem services and nutrition security. Thanks for so much for coming on the show, Philip. It's great to meet you.
1: Likewise, thanks for having me on the show.
0: Yeah. So, why don't we start with just some basic background on the importance of weeds to biodiversity and kind of how do you define a weed?
1: So there are a number of less technical and more technical definitions of weeds. I mean, some people say a weed is a plant whose um, you know, merits are not yet known, or a weed is a plant growing someplace we don't want it to grow. Um, but there actually are characteristics of plants that make them weedy. Uh, These include things like, as you mentioned before, how successful they are at competing with other plants, especially in given circumstances. They tend to be things that can be pollinated in a variety of ways, not just by wind or just by one insect, but, you know, by by lots of different insects and things, they tend to also be able to propagate vegetatively. You know, if you try to kill a dandelion with a hoe, you get six dandelions instead of a dead dandelion.
0: More um, food. More food,
1: exactly. <laughs> um, they tend to have competitive strategies like starting out with a basil rosette that will smother anything else that's trying to come up. They tend to have seeds that can... Uh, last in the ground a long time before germination and only start to germinate when they start when, when they come up to the light so if something disturbs the soil and, and brings them up um, they tend to do well without extra inputs that our usual agricultural plants have. They don't need to be watered or fertilized or whatever they just they thrive in a broad variety of circumstances. Um, now, some of them are beneficial, and some of them we maybe don't really know what to do with, or they're at least not edible. They might be a source of fiber or something else that, that's useful uh, you know, for, for making things. But um, yeah, in general, it, it has to do with their ability to compete with other plants, their ability to thrive, especially a tendency to like-disturbed soils like happen where humans intervene, um, where when we disturb by building something or with agriculture or, or something else.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I've seen this firsthand in my own research um, in the Mediterranean where you'll often have agricultural plots and you have a zone known as the ecotomal zone, right? So it's kind of like the border region around your garden plots. It's a little bit of disturbed soil and all these weeds pop up, but in many cases, they're allowed to stay and flourish because local people use them as sources of food or as medicine or in other applications um, as well. And I think we've lost sight of of the role of these weeds and in, in within the system of modern agriculture, um, most have. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think I mean many of these have been deliberate food crops uh, mm-hmm. for generations and generations. They've just fallen out of fashion in the global north as we've gone to industrial scale monocropping.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Absolutely. Well, I know that you're the founder of this, and I love the title of this, it's, it's Wild and Feral Food Week. What can you tell us about, about this initiative, and, and what does it involve? Well,
1: it's, it has a number of goals. Um, the ultimate goal is to try to create a supply chain to get these plants that are often seen as a nuisance off farms and into the food supply. Um, I mean, foraging is one thing. It's not something that scales terribly well, although it's very important in my life. It's the way I provide a lot of the greens that that I eat. But the way to change things at scale is to leverage what's going on in agriculture. Um, These plants volunteer between the rows and at the margins of farms. Um, They have value to farms and farmers in providing um, edible or economic cover crops biodiversity, habitat for pollinators. They can contribute to the arbuscular mycorrhizal network. They, they have all kinds of, of, of benefits. And so the issue is how do you get farmers to recognize that there really is value there, value in allowing them to grow and then harvesting them? How do you get things that first mile off the farm and into the food supply? How do you educate chefs, eaters, Uh, et cetera, about the merits, you know, the fact that these are delicious and, you know, really do present culinary opportunity um, and, you know, kind of tie things end to end. So part of this is trying to create the supply chain, working with farmers to get them to harvest these things and bring them to market, working with chefs and bartenders and distilleries and uh, other people who make, you know, um, packaged foods and other things to recognize that there's something interesting and tasty going on and make these things more familiar to, to eaters so that they, they say, Oh yeah, I've seen that before. That's delicious. I had that, you know, uh, it, it really is food. Um, so it's it's really trying to be an end-to-end solution and to to shine some light and give some love to the foragers who are really kind of pushing the boundaries backwards in time in history, towards uh, towards a time when we really did um all grow up learning to recognize food in the environment.
0: Sounds great this 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 idea of of making use of all of the resources at a farm made me think of it's almost like a second phase of gleaning, right? So you have a lot of you know gleaners come back come through after the first kind of crop harvest has happened. There's a lot of fruit that are perhaps left behind or aren't um, aren weren't weren't picked in the in the first pass through and I'm wondering, um is there a term for that kind of for for going through and finding those other wild um, species?
1: Well, it, it, gleaning is a is a reasonable term for that also, but I think kind of a better analogy is the snout to tail movement in mm-hmm. processing animals. Um, it's eating the whole farm in the same way that you might eat the whole animal. Yeah. Throw. Instead of just the deliberate crops, there's also the volunteers. Um,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. Absolutely. Cool. Well, tell me a bit more about what you're doing at UC Berkeley. What are some of the activities that you have, um, where you're working with students to kind of raise awareness around foraging?
1: So uh, one of the things I've been involved in is a course on uh, a student-led class on California food systems and uh, have them explore foraging and learn about some of the wild foods that are available, both native and non-native plants. Um, Some of the work has been um, mapping the availability of these plants in especially in areas that are ecologically challenged and economically challenged and don't have a ready source of fresh vegetables. Uh, so to do that, we've deliberately gone to areas that say were formerly shipyards and are now mixed use residential industrial, where the soil is likely to have a high level of contamination uh, mm-hmm. to see whether, um, when these plants volunteer there, are they safe to eat? Mm-hmm. Um, how much is there? could this actually be a meaningful source of nutrition for people who would ordinarily have to travel a long way to get get fresh vegetables? Um, So that's been one effort, including mapping the availability and occupancy over time, um, measuring the nutrition of the plants, uh, doing toxicological tests on the plants, testing them for herbicide residues and things like that to find out whether they're safe to eat, even when the soil isn't isn't in great shape
0: no, I mean this this brings up an important point around land access and access to safe lands to both grow crops and also to, as you as you said, to to forage safely. Um, so this has a lot of kind of you know implications for social justice around food. I know this is also a topic that you're interested in um around decolonizing foraging and and thinking about some of these social justice issues. What can you share with us about that?
1: So uh, another prong of the work that we've been doing is uh, working on policy. For example, mm-hmm. in most places in the United States, foraging on public lands, on municipal lands, parks and whatnot, is illegal. It, in mm. Where I live, it's illegal to take a dead leaf from a park. Um, wow. Yeah, uh, and that's, that's generally true in the United States. Mm-hmm. So how can we change policies so that we really do view green space as Uh, as part of the commons, as a shared resource that really is a productive ecology and not just something to look at. Um, How can we we use spaces like that, whether it's municipal parks, schoolyards or whatever, um, as edible gardens? Um, I mean, one of the interesting things I've seen in looking at edible gardens in elementary schools is that very often there's more food growing outside the box than inside the box. Mm -hmm. It's just not recognized as food. Uh, mm-hmm. So th- there, are, there are places that have reduced or eliminated the use of herbicides to control what they view as pest plants. The next step is to use those plants as a resource. Mm-hmm. Um, now that you've stopped uh, poisoning them, um, let's you know let's let's figure out what what we can do with them.
0: Yeah, well, and in, in last week's episode on this show, we explored the implications of using herbicides at mass scale for monocropping, um, you know, there are risks to human health and environmental health. There are a lot of downsides to this kind of approach. And I know this is, you know, another area that you're interested in is really moving towards a more sustainable um, college campus space. Um, can you tell us a bit about that?
1: By using herbicides to try to control weeds, we it has unintended consequences, one of which is to select for super weeds. Mm. Um, and very often, the thing, the, the plants that people see as a nuisance are, in fact, edible and even were cultivated deliberately historically, but have merely fallen out of fashion. Treating them as the enemy and trying to annihilate them with chemical weapons doesn't have the desired effect of eliminating them. Um, it just has the effect of selective applying selective pressures that tend to reduce the favorable characteristics and accentuate the unfavorable characteristics. So I mean, they even, uh, I mean there, there's a vast number of th- the world's worst weeds, um, ac- according to a survey, you know, I, I would say roughly eighty percent of them are edible and you know, maybe fifty percent are delicious. Um, the the plants that uh, Bay Area urban farmers and gardeners complain about, um, I think on the list, the nineteen most frequently, Listed ones, I think you know, 15 of them are edible and 11 are delicious. Uh, so why are we not managing this as a resource, uh, and why you know why are we instead treating it you know as something to try to eliminate? I um, mean, the same thing happens in in human health. You know, very often it's the case that managing a cancer is a more effective strategy than trying to eradicate the cancer um, because of the consequences for the rest of your body. Mm-hmm. Uh, So it's just a a relationship with this really needs to change. And even on organic farms, people's relationship with weeds can be very, very different from farm to farm. There are places that will literally take a propane torch and burn the the weed seedlings as they start to come up. And there are other places that will allow them to grow as cover crops um, Mm -hmm. and then either use them as um, green manure or feed them to the chickens or or something. And then there's a much smaller number of places that will actually bring them to market.
0: Um, Yeah. Well, I think it goes beyond, you know, beyond farms. I think many of us, the audience is listening. If you have a curated green lawn in your front or backyard, you are also engaging in monoculture. And, you know, there's a huge amount of of herbicides that are dumped onto American lawns every year, Um, especially targeting, you know, pesky plants like dandelion. And in fact, dandelion greens are some of my favorite uh, foods to forage. So don't try and kill them, like collect them and eat them. They're amazing. Um, One of my favorite recipes Um, is dandelion greens with some garlic and chickpeas as a kind of broth and soup. It's this amazing, bitter deliciousness.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, most of these herbicides target broadleaf weeds, which Mm -hmm. include a vast array of delicious, you know, edible plants. This whole notion of a lawn is very colonial, European, Mm -hmm. um, just a very broken aesthetic. I mean, something clicked in my brain when I started foraging a lot. And I I went from seeing the manicured lawn as something pretty to seeing the manicured lawn as something that was sterile. Um, You go someplace where, you know, people aren't dumping the chemicals on their turf and that becomes rich and vibrant. Look, it's full of food. Look, it's amazing. Look at all this biodiversity. Look at these flowers. Look at the insects buzzing, right? It's a very different experience from a golf course.
0: I think the last time I was this is pre-COVID, I was at a, a fancy event at a, at a at a golf course, and it, we were outside, and they had you know beautiful food and drinks. Everyone's looking outside. I just was just staring at this desolate, barren landscape of the golf course. It depressed me so much. I was like, and you know, and I'm talking to people, and I'm like, don't you see? That there's it's just nothingness. It's just it's just herbicides and and. Where's the biodiversity? Where are the other plants? Where are the insects? Where are the birds? Like, this is atrocious. Like, why do we have this?
1: I think, I, I yeah.
0: I think we, it just becomes such a second nature of like, oh, you're supposed to have this curated, you know, lawn. But yeah, I, I hope that people are having their eyes opened a bit more, too. Um, so.
1: Like, like you, I can't look at a golf course without yeah. visualizing all the chemical inputs that are required to make mm-hmm. it look like that. And it just becomes like, this is a scary place to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so much stuff in the ground.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> chemical wasteland. So I'm um, sorry to any of the golfers out there, but check and see <laughs> what, yeah, I mean, what you're I, walking on and, and the impact it's having on, on the local environment.
1: I'm sure there are places that do a better job of holistic management of their mm. turf. But um, the typical typical example is um, relies a lot on on chemistry. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned college campuses, and yeah, there's this aesthetic in many places that college campuses should look like golf courses. And mm-hmm. uh, my feeling is like, what would be wrong with UC Berkeley's campus looking more like Tilden Park, um, the wilderness behind it? Um, you know, I would I would prefer that. Um, there's also some notions around land management, landscape management where uh people say well the moment you let the first weed pop up people will then start littering they'll they'll feel like this isn't uh an environment that people tend to and it kind of encourages bad behavior i haven't seen that i think that may be just folklore Mm -hmm. um but uh yeah another thing you know once you get people once you remind people that our food really does come from the ground um their attitude towards the ground can change. And if you really get it because you start picking food, you know, from, from your front doorstep, you're probably much less likely to dump motor oil there um, or rat poison or you know yeah. whatever it is. Um, because you think this is actually a resource, you know, and mm-hmm. I have taught classes on things like emergency preparedness. Like how do you get you know salad from the sidewalk after the seismic event? Um, what are you going to do mm-hmm. after the earthquake? Um, so I thought I was preparing people in the Bay area for something like that. And I only realized that the pandemic was, uh, was another opportunity. So foraging during the pandemic is a chance to not have to go to the grocery store as often to have uh, a bit of food sovereignty and control over what's going on, have some physical activity that's socially distance, start to relate to the environment in a different way, get in touch with your inner naturalist, which we're all born to be. Yeah. Um, you know, we, and we somehow learn to tune it out. I mean, a, a way that I've describe this is, in our culture, we've turned control of food over to a food clergy that tells us what is and isn't food and sanctifies it in some particular way. So the dandelion that's growing in your yard is not food. The dandelion that's in a plastic bag um, in the grocery store or the farmers market is food. It's been blessed and sanctified, um, and we are somehow not even empowered to recognize it as food unless it comes in a plastic bag or on a plate. Um, yeah.
0: No, like, I just had a vision of I've seen even like plastic wrapped bananas <laughs> in the store. I'm like, what yeah. are we doing? What are we doing with the waste and around our packaging of our foods? And I think there's there's so much not there's so much power in knowledge and if you look at what truly makes a resilient food system it all comes down to local knowledge and understanding not only what is safe to collect and eat but also how to prepare that how to store it um and also how to distinguish it from other toxic species i mean we 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 can't go into a discussion of foraging without putting out some disclaimers because you know you really um need to educate yourself and there are lots of resources out there um, but you don't want to, you know, mistake one plant for another, or ha- you know, or one fun- fungus for another, and have a toxic event. But there are plentiful examples of wild wild plants that are um, edible if prepared um, correctly.
1: Yeah, so I, I think this is a good chance to say that when we talk about a plant being edible, that doesn't mean that you can eat any part of the plant any season mm-hmm. without, you know, preparing in a particular way. What it means is there is some part of the plant. When harvested at the right time and prepared in the right way, won't kill you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, that said, there are plants that are, you know, wonderfully edible from, you know, root to flower petal, and dandelion is one of them. Um, yeah, I like the puffballs particularly, but you know, the roots, the root crowns, the stems, the leaves, and the flowers are are all edible. Um,
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and this country used to be covered with, with other resources, especially nut trees. I'm thinking of like the American chestnut was a massive source of food. Of course, we have the chestnut blight that's wiped out a lot of our older trees, but there's also butternut. There's, you know, here in Georgia, um, we we are just past serviceberry season, um, which are also known as, as Saskatoons and June berries. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's lots of, of trees that also provide foods to us. And I find that sometimes some of the biggest arguments that kind of Public space planning committees have um around the planting of fruit-bearing trees in landscapes. The argument against edible landscapes is, well, what will we do with all the mess? And there's a there's a um a, a local forager and um, real advocate for for fruit trees in Atlanta. um Robbie Astrove. Who has to say you know this is a problem that we can eat our way out of? <laughs> yeah, you know, that's exactly.
1: I mean, that's, uh, I mean uh, falling fruit is an organization that tries to map the availability of of uh, fruit trees uh, nationally. But yeah, it's a problem. Yeah, problem of surplus food is a problem I'd like to have.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah we have in, in in Atlanta. We also have a, an organization similar to that it's called Concrete Jungle. And they map fruit trees, they organize volunteer groups that will go out and collect the wild pears and other fresh, you know, fresh fruits during the right seasons. And then they bring those to food banks and and places that are distributing food to people. Um, they make amazing ciders and jams and all kinds of fun things. I mean, so we do, we are surrounded by foods and in many cases, just people don't necessarily know how to recognize them. Yeah, yeah
1: it, really, it really is an empowerment thing. We've really been taught to be afraid of stuff. Mm-hmm. And instead of learning about it, I mean, it, it, education in this should start when we're toddlers, right? It's like, this is safe to eat. That's not safe to eat. I mean, we, it, it's, it's just a shame. It's it's fundamentally human. It really is core to being a human being to be able to go and recognize food in the environment. And we've just lost that as a yeah. culture.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, I think in some cases it goes even a step beyond that. Um, many children today can't recognize you know whole vegetables, uh, much less like that you get at the grocery store. Much less um, those that are foraged. But that's that's a discussion for another day. Um, I know that you forage a lot in California. Can you tell us about some of your favorite um, foods to forage and and how you prepare them?
1: Sure. So um, I mean, first. I'll say that I tend to forage primarily non-native invasive species. Mm-hmm. And you see the same non-native invasive species all over the world. Um, most of what I eat and you know, was from the Eurasian continent, some from South Africa or South America. There are a few local native species that, that I do forage a lot and that are abundant, like California bay laurel nuts, mm-hmm. uh, which, uh, they're about the size of a, of an olive when they have the fruit on them. They're like a mini avocado. The, the tree is actually related to the avocado. But the stone, um, if you roast it, it, uh, to, it, it, it's very pungent bay flavor before roasting. But when you roast it, it ends up somewhere on the coffee chocolate spectrum. Mm. Uh, you can use it instead of chocolate chips. You can make truffles from them. I've used them to make mole and things like that, um, brittles, uh, nut, like nut brittles and whatnot. They're absolutely delicious um, and incredibly abundant in season, and they will keep for you know a year just in, in cool, dry, dark storage. Um, what have I, you know, in the last few weeks, the kinds of things I've been foraging, uh, several mustards. Uh, Hirschfeldia in Kana is one that we get a lot here, Mediterranean short pod mustard. The leaves are a little bit fuzzy. Um, the flowers are, are delicious, uh, it's, a, it's a relatively mild mustard. Um, let's see, brassica nigra, black mustard, that's much more pungent, uh, much more fire in the mouth. Uh, again, the flowers are fun. I tend to collect a lot of the flowers in season and dry them and use mm-hmm. them as a garnish. When they're fresh, I do things like put them under the skin of chicken before roasting chicken, and you get a lovely yellow color to the flesh, almost like you'd use saffron or something like that, a mild spiciness that's really delicious. Uh, Some of the mints are starting to come in, including some local mints. Um, Let's see, there's a woodland calamint that's been going. That is a non-native, I believe, Uh, but yerba buena is starting, and coyote mint is starting, both of which are local. Um, miner's lettuce season is already over. That's one of my favorites, but that that's something that is a native that we get, you know, very abundantly in mm-hmm. season. Chickweed is mostly gone until we get a little bit more moisture. We're starting to get some fog drip now uh, as part of summer, and that may bring some of the chickweed back. That's one of my favorites. It's just so approachable. It's, you know, anybody yeah. who, who who could stomach alfalfa sprouts, you know, would <laughs> find it, you know, kind of on the, on the delicious side. Um, what else? Uh, yarrow is in, that's more of, a, of a, an herb than a vegetable. Um, California sagebrush is in right now, again, more of an herb than a vegetable. I tend to use those things in preparing meat and fish, but I also like infusing them into spirits. Um, maybe that's what I should have brought for the show and tell, although my, my liquor cabinet's behind me, I can show you some of that. Um,
0: well, that's great. i i have I have a little something in my in my cabinet behind me as well. i elder flowers just finished um, flowering in Atlanta. We're at the very tail end. And so I have a big vat of um of elder flowers just steeping in grain alcohol that will become my own version of St. germain um very soon.
1: <laughs> yeah, ours have uh, flowered a few a few weeks ago. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to the fruit,
0: yeah, yeah. 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 That's great, what are some of your favorite liqueurs to make from wild plants? All
1: right, so through the, through the magic of video editing, we're back with, with booze in our hands. Um, this is uh, pine and purple sage. Uh, this is gleaned orange zest and green juniper branches.
0: Wow. So how are, how are you making these? You're just steeping them in grain alcohol or are they infused? Um, in, in-
1: most of what I use as a base these days is uh, Oakland Spirits uh, here in Oakland. Uh, bottles 153 proof brandy. Ooh. Um, so this is a grape based spirit. Sometimes I will infuse into grain alcohol uh, and sometimes into a gin. So for example, mm-hmm. let's see this one is the botanist gin infused with pine sap that I uh, foraged in the Sierras. Um, It's got a wonderful, smoky, piney thing going on. Um, uh, Yeah, this is redwood tips and shoots. I don't know if you can see, the color's not, this one's a little murky. Peruvian pink peppercorns.
0: Oh, uh, nice.
1: uh, Yerba Buena and Coyote Mint, two native California mints. Um, and do you do
0: you add sugars to these, or are they just uh, just just in the in the brandy? The brandy's a little bit I, sweet already. You
1: know, right? I tend to I like bottle them as tinctures that are still mm-hmm. at very high proof, and then use them as an ingredient in a cocktail or sip them as a schnapps-like thing. Yeah, uh, but I don't tend to make liqueurs. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the things I make are closer to something like a gin. Um, this is a pineapple weed. Um, uh, which nice. you know familiar with it it's uh, it's like a wild chamomile um uh these are actually california poppy flowers uh which have a slight almond taste to them um they're beautiful uh, golden color um yeah uh redwood green redwood cones actually are still super tannic um and uh, do something like that um it's fun to oh these are uh these are um, mustard flowers, um, and that ends up having like a slightly garlicky taste to it when you do when you do the extraction. I mean, it, it's it's a way to bottle the season in a fun way as well. Yes. So you know you like remember what things looked like at that time of year, and you know like drinking it the next year when the when the flowers or the or the the herbs come back is you know is a lot of fun. Um, things that have a fair amount of oil in them. So this is actually gleaned orange zest. Mm. Um, orange is going in the neighborhood doing an extraction in something as high proof as this you can get so much oil into solution that um, when you add water it makes a louche like uh, absinthe does so it turns mm-hmm. cloudy um, i mean I, I can i can do a demonstration if you would like it's kind of fun uh-huh. um, so talk, talk me talk through what you're through, doing yeah today so uh this is can you see this Pretty well. It's uh, you're
0: yeah, kind of it's nice kind of golden colored. Uh, um, oh wow! And it turns cloudy as you add water, yeah. just so, like it would with absinthe. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Um, what happens is uh, when the uh, alcohol concentration gets lower, the oil that was in solution uh, can no longer stay in solution. It goes into suspension and makes the the, the cloud effect. So
0: that's yeah. really cool.
1: Yeah. I've got
0: some things here that I made um, this past week. This is my um, I guess it's not not exactly forage although I did steal it from one of my friend's yards <laughs> some <laughs> some fig leaves and um this is a recipe from one of my friends um Suzanne who's based in the UK and basically you take like seven fig leaves um 300 grams of sugar um 375 mils of water you kind of boil that for 20 minutes at like a light bubble leave it overnight mm-hmm. and then Pull out the fig leaves and then add 50/50 gin to your your fig um, liqueur. It's this amazing over ice or ice cream, which is one of my favorite things to do. And then this is my take.
1: Like, do the leaves taste like fig? Um.
0: They they have this really magical flavor. It's hard to describe, but it's it's different from the fig fruit, but really nice, really really nice. Um, Fig leaves tend
1: to off that sort of latex sort of stuff when you break them, but yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. But the latex doesn't really. Um, there's there's no like milky latex in the in the final product that you see. Oh. These are my elder flowers um, that I've got going with a little yeah. bit of um, some lemon zest, and so I'm just going to let this steep in grain alcohol for um, about a month. It's usually what I do with my limoncello too. Is I let it just sit in the dark cabinet for about a month before I add. Um, you know, simple syrup or like a cream base. I'll have to kind of play around with it, <laughs> but it's a lot of fun to make these. <laughs>
1: yep, better living through chemistry. That's it.
0: Yeah, there you go. There you go. That's great. Um, so when when you think about um, this topic of edible edible campuses and herbicide-free campuses, like what would you envision for like a college campus to look like? Um, And would you integrate education into that, into that landscape as well? So, uh,
1: we actually have a plan at UC Berkeley to dedicate a a, a plot that's near the north side of campus. It's called Observatory Hill to make a wild and feral garden, um, that would have a number of functions. So first it would be a demonstration project to show that you can have a very low input, uh, productive, um, and still beautiful place on campus. The idea will be to um, think about the landscape architecture in a way that things, there's something blooming most of the year. Of course, our climate is pretty mild. and makes that easier mm-hmm. than in some other places. Have it also be a teaching lab um, where instead of permanent signage, there would be something like um, chalkboards where you could write down what's growing right now, right here. Um, something about the um, ethnobotanical history of the plant, where it, what it's native to, where it's been used, what it's been used for, um, and so on. It's kind of a welcome to campus for people. Um, it would be very distinctively Berkeley, you um, know, in, in, in some way, but also contribute to food security on campus. So it's it's you know, combination learning lab. Uh, a little a spot of biodiversity, a demonstration project, um, and a contributor to food security. Um, more generally, you know there are places that are trying to say, reduce their water use by mulching. Well, that's one option. Um, unfortunately, many mulches that are used for landscape purposes are treated with herbicides themselves. Um, mm. so that's, you know, maybe not the most ecological thing you could do, but there are a lot of low water input. Um, things that you could grow instead that make effective ground cover um, and could also be edible. So, I don't really know that uh, other than giving up um, large lawns, uh, you know, that, that kind of notion that things need to be manicured, green, pristine, I, I don't think that things would look that different to most people unless they had an interest in botany. Um, because then they would say, oh, um, instead of bringing in this exotic whatever to try to make this place look like Versailles, <laughs> um, planting something that actually thrives in this environment with very little input, and look, and, and you can eat this part and that part and the other part. Berkeley campus actually has a lot of strawberry madrone trees uh, on it, which you know produce a lot of fruit, you know, about the size of a raspberry or something, delicious. Nobody eats them; they don't recognize that it's food.
0: Hmm. Yeah, lots, lots of possibilities there. Um, I think both from the planting and the and the education and utility side, like. I could, I could envision some of these lawns being transformed to kind of natural, you know, wildflower meadows or, you know, with, with local native species. And that would be beautiful. It would be beautiful. And there'd be a lot of edibles I'm sure mixed in there as well. Great. Well, where can people find out more about the feral and wild food week? Um, I know you have it every spring. Is that right?
1: Yeah, we, it it just happened uh, last month. Um, it was our seventh year of it. Um, it uh, the last two years, uh, given the pandemic, have not been uh, had the broadest participation. But I'm very grateful to the uh, the foragers and restaurants and bars and and distilleries that that participated, nonetheless. Um, our our URL is forage.berkeley.edu. Um, also osfood.berkeley.edu. Um, OS food on Instagram um, and Twitter. Mm-hmm. And so that's uh, that's how to find us. Um, and yeah uh, you know, people are interested, probably the best way to get started is to find a foraging instructor in your area um, who really knows what's growing locally and can help you uh, avoid um, uh, deadly mistakes <laughs> or painful mistakes. Um, that said, I mean you you've, you've probably given similar advice, but the the way that I invite people to approach this is to say you probably already recognize some wild edible plant, whether it's nasturtium um, or you know, oxalis uh, or dandelion, you know, you have the start of your green list. So you know that whenever you see that, if the place it's growing isn't terribly sketchy, you can grab some of it and stick it in your pocket or stick it on your burrito or, you know, whatever it is and just add some more, you know, micronutrients and phytochemicals and fiber to your diet for free. Um, And then, you know, that's, that's the start. So then you need to make friends with another plant. Um, and you just make friends with them one by one and uh and 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 you know before you know it you can have something on your plate every day that you that you forage yourself um that is hyper local hyper seasonal um and you have the power you have the control over it. you have the knowledge so i think it's
0: Yeah, I love I love that idea, and also thinking of greeting them as friends. I I have this habit of like of doing exactly that when I see a plant that I recognize. I'm like, oh, hello, little blackberry bush, you know. Now I'm going to eat you.
1: (laughs) I joke that you know what's happened as a result of. I mean, I'm not an expert at this by any means. I mean, I know many experts and I'm not one of them. I, Again, so we we publish a little guide we call the Bay Area Baker's Dozen. It's 13 plants that grow in the Bay Area that are abundant and hard to confuse with anything that will hurt you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not really intended to be a plant identification guide, more just a wake up call saying, hey, this stuff is there and it's abundant. Of those 13 plants, I think only one of them is a native. Everything else is a non-native invasive. As I was saying, I'm not an expert, but once you know a dozen of the most common plants, you will see them all over the world. I mean, I have photos of the same plants in, you know, Jordan, um, Japan, Mexico, Canada, the East Coast, Central Europe, Eastern Europe. I mean, it's, it's the same things. They're world travelers. They travel with people. They are part of what uh, is sometimes called a transported ecology. That, along with agriculture, you bring the agricultural weeds. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all part of one ecosystem. And as we, we discussed before, you know, it's one of the things that happens when you disturb the soil. So great, let's use it all.
0: That's great. That's Beautiful. a ma- that's a great place to end. Well, thank you so much, Philip, for coming on the show. It was lovely speaking with you.
1: Pleasure, likewise.
0: Yeah, you've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, recorded on Skype. I want to send a huge shout out to the show's producers, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth of Co-Conspiracy Entertainment. You can find uh, this episode and all of our others at our website at foodiepharmacology.com. You can also find the video version of this episode, which has us holding up some delightfully colorful um, bottles of foraged ingredients in our in our liquor cabinets. Um, at the teach ethnobotany youtube channel under the foodie pharmacology playlist you can also find us on apple Podcasts. if you go there please leave us a rating and maybe a comment or two that would be really helpful in um, helping us to get the word out about the show thanks so much for listening stay healthy out there and i'll see you next time